invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We come this morning to uh, one of the most well-known of Jesus' parables, the parable of the prodigal son. I know that uh, this is going to be a, a parable that um, you've read, you've heard sermons on, and one of the challenges of, of preaching is uh, how do you make something this old uh, be new and fresh, and, and I've decided I'm not going to take that burden on myself, I'll leave that to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a, the old song, remember, I'd love to tell the story to those who know it best, seem hungry and thirsting to hear it like the rest. I hope that the, uh, the good old story is, um, is new and fresh and beautiful uh, to you as we just see the love of God for, uh, for sinners in, and the wonderful truth of the gospel, the shocking truth of the gospel. Let's pick it up. I'll, I'd like to start at verse, um, at verse 1 if we can because I think we need to catch the context. And so let's begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 26. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young man gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. Against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of that chapter. Let's uh, ask the Lord to bless us as we come to this this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that's been written for us. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak still through these words and that the Holy Spirit delights to take these words to teach and train us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have your way again. Give us ears to hear, uh, for this is uh, the best news that sinners could ever hear. And we pray that you'd be honored and that we would be uh, blessed and built up and transformed by the wonder of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They said this is one of the most well-known stories of uh, the Bible. Uh, maybe the Good Samaritan would be a, a, a parable of Jesus that would rival it. But this is a story that has vivid images and dramatic revelations and surprising turns. Uh, it's, it's meant to be remembered. And so this morning, don't be afraid to just let the story and the images of the story settle in your mind and your heart. Jesus tells it the way he does because uh, there's power in this, in this story. The wonderful truth of the gospel is, is contained here. As you noted, the story actually begins in verses 1 and 2 when Jesus is confronted with two groups of people. Uh, the, the sinful people, the immoral people... Uh, are gathering to him. These would be the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, in our day, you could maybe say the bikers and tattoo artists and marijuana smokers and petty thieves and prostitutes and con artists. Uh, the people that you wouldn't want your kids hanging around, they're gathering around Jesus. They seem drawn to him. And then you have the other people, the respectable people, the good people, and they are good people. The people who care about law and order and who care about the word of God and who, who care about righteousness, who care about civic morality, um, concerned people, good people. But while the, the sinners are gathering, the saints are muttering. And in that context, Jesus tells this story. He tells it specifically to address the muttering of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people. What exactly were they muttering about? What has them so concerned? Well, the problem is that Jesus receives sinners. He, he welcomes them. It, it's a very strong word in, uh, in Luke's gospel. It, it always has the meaning to eagerly wait for, to long for. So if you think about when uh, Jesus is born and you read in Luke chapter 2 that Simeon was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. That's the word. It's the same for Anna in 2.38. She gave thanks for this child that all Israel had been looking for, longing for, eagerly anticipating. That's the word. So, you see, it's, it's not just that Jesus allowed himself to be surrounded by sinners. It's almost as if he tried to be with sinners. They could see that Jesus enjoyed this. He liked being with tax collectors and prostitutes. He smiled when he was with them. And if you're a moral person, person and you're concerned about righteousness and you know your Old Testament, as they did, it's not hard to see why they muttered. This man is not serious about the law of Moses. He's not serious about the moral welfare of Israel. He certainly is not a prophet. And so they muttered and so Jesus speaks. 
And he tells this magnificent story about a wicked man and a waking soul and a waiting father. And that's what we'll look at this morning. A wicked man and a waking soul and a waiting father. The story begins, as you know, with this this tale of woe, of the degradation, the, the, the way sin always works. So here you have a young man who, who leaves the bounty and the glory of his father's table and ends up through the paths of sin in the degradation and filth of the pigsty. When we first meet the young man, he's at home. It's apparently a very good home. His father is wealthy. He has servants. He has property that can be divided. Uh, the son has everything he could want in the father's house. There's, there's no sense that there was anything lacking there. He's loved by his father, that's evident. And the future stretches out before this young man, full of promise. But he doesn't want it. He's a wicked son. And that's evident from the beginning. It's evident in what he said. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, to our ears, that... Um, doesn't sound nearly as scandalous, nearly as offensive as it would have sounded to Jesus' original audience. This was an honor society. And honoring your parents is, is it's just essential. I mean, it's to dishonor your father, particularly a good father like this, for a son to do this. Well, in it's equivalent, I think, in our day when we hear about a young person who murders his parents in cold blood and then maybe steals their possessions and runs away. We, we, we see the awfulness of that. Well, that's, that's what this is in this culture. The, the, the son is, in effect, saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead yet, would you just mind... Uh, Let's pretend you are. Let's divide the property and give me uh, my share of the property. I mean, imagine if your child came to you and said that. I was thinking of this. I thought, what if, what if one of my boys came and said, you know, Dad, give me my share of the, of the inheritance. And I thought I'd probably give him five bucks and say, you know, here you go. <laughs> but that's not what's happening here. This is wicked. This is awful. This is murderous. This man has, has revealed his degenerate heart, and he's not, he's not left the front door. He cares nothing for the father. He cares nothing about the shame this will cause the family. Now, everyone listening to the story knows what the father ought to do. The father should rebuke, discipline, possibly disown his son for such an egregious act of betrayal and treachery. That's what ought to happen. But the father doesn't do that. The father does the amazing thing of dividing the property between the sons. Now, already there are some in the crowd who would begin to question the moral seriousness of the father. You cannot give these wicked young men or the rain like that. This is not going to end well. A wicked son like this needs to be dealt with. But it's not what the father does. He divides the property and then... He does exactly what all the moral people in the, in the crowd would, would expect him to do. Not many days later, we read, this is what he did. He didn't take long for the true intentions to be revealed. 
He sold the property, sold the animals, whatever it was his that he received from his father. He sold it, got the cash together, and hit the road. And the text says, Jesus says, he took a journey to a far country, a distant land. That's not just a geographical detail, it's a theological declaration. He's leaving the land of God. He's leaving his covenant home. He's leaving the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's, he's not just leaving home. He's not just leaving town. He's leaving the faith. And he's doing it on purpose. He's leaving the church of God. He is headed for pagan country because he likes the pagan lifestyle. He's a pagan in his heart. And he wants, to, he, wants to get, he wants to go and enjoy that life. I mean, he does not accidentally end up on Bourbon Street in New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras. He planned this trip. He knew exactly where he was going. And he got there as quickly as he could. It's what he loves. We need to see that about this young man. He does not love his father. He does not love the things of God. In fact, he can't wait to get away from all of it. And there, he squandered his property on reckless living. The Greek word for squandered here, it's the, it's the antonym of to save, to deliver, to keep, to hold. He just threw it away. He wasted it. And he didn't just waste his money. He wasted his inheritance. He wasted all the spiritual privileges and blessings that he had received as a boy growing up in his father's house. He wasted his future, thrown it away. Threw his life away, the life that, that he could have had as his father's son. It's all gone, all consumed with this reckless, wasteful living. Of course, we see this happen over and over uh, when people are given the opportunity um, to maybe have a lot of money, for instance. I mean, if you just look at what happens to people who win the lottery... Uh, it destroys their life. I think it's 75% of NFL stars are bankrupt within 10 years after their career. Um, so we see examples of it. But, but, but Jesus wants us to just, just focus on this young guy. Uh, this is what happened. This is what he did. And he enjoyed doing it. How, how could he just throw this all away? It was fun. He had friends, he had parties, he had women. It was enjoyable, you see. If you have a heart for it, this is enjoyable. And we need, to, we need to just be honest about that. I wonder sometimes if we don't leave our children open to temptation when they, when they sort of run into the real world out there, if we don't leave them open to temptation because we fail to tell them that sin is fun. People who go to parties and live it up, they're, have, they're having fun. Their flesh loves it. It's always enjoyable to the flesh. At least, you know, initially. Initially, for a while. But it always comes to a bad end. Either in this life or the life to come. It never ends well. And, and that's what we see in the story as well. We see what happened. It spent everything and then a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, that pagan country, who sent him into his fields to eat, 
to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now again, in a Jewish culture where pigs are, are uh, unclean, pigs are not kept, pigs are not eaten, uh, everyone knows the moral here. Uh, this boy is as lost as lost can be. He's as far from God as it's possible to be. Sin, you see, is a hard taskmaster, isn't it? The, the illicit pleasure becomes an addiction. The affair begins a path of devastating destruction. Idols bite back. And that's what the young man experiences. He runs out of money, runs out of friends. And now suddenly he finds himself far from home, a slave to his desires, a servant to a stranger, feeding someone else's pigs and wishing that someone cared for him like they care for the pigs. At least the pigs have someone who takes responsibility for them. This man's utterly alone. No one gave him anything. That's such an apt description of, of, of the alienation and misery of sin. No one gave him anything. It's a hard and lonely world when you walk away from God. And the farther you walk into sin, the harder and lonelier it becomes. And the people who are partying, partying so promisingly on your TV screen, you should see that maybe their faces when they're lying awake in bed at night wondering why they feel so alone. You see, this young man has destroyed everything worthwhile in his life. He's destroyed his reputation. He's destroyed his position. He's lost his inheritance. He's shamed his father's name. His position there with the pigs is a fitting illustration, a perfect illustration of what he's become. He's traded all the blessings that could have been his for this misery, this alienation. And, and no one can say that it's not what he deserved. It's exactly what he deserved. Jesus' audience understood this perfectly. This would have been a good place for the story to end for the moral people because it's an excellent example of why sons ought to obey their fathers. You can use this story, you see, if you're a father. You can go home and you can sit down with your, with your teenager and say, okay, you want to you be all that? You want to you rebel against your parents? This, look at what happens. And it's true, it does happen. <laughs> it, this is the way it works, you see. This is a useful story to this point if you're seeking a moral tale. But Jesus isn't, he's not telling a moral tale, he's telling the gospel. Which is vastly more challenging, but wonderfully hopeful. But we need to see this young man, and we need to see who he is, because this is where, where the interpretations of the story sometimes miss the point. There's a great temptation to apply this young man's story as uh, the story of of every person, every sinner, even right God's people today. And in some sense, that's true. We could say we've all have wandered away like sheep. But Geoff Thomas had a great sermon on this, and I think he was exactly right when he said the young man here is not a metaphor for every sinner. You don't, you don't say to right 65-year-old, you know, godly lady who's been in the church her whole life and sincerely loves the Lord and serves Jesus Christ, you, you, don't, you don't say, this is you. And, and why not? It's not that she's, it's not that she's uh, 
She's, she's better. But you see, you flatten the story. It's not that she's more deserving of God's grace. She, she's not. But you flatten the story and you lose the impact if you just, if you just make this sort of a general um, application to, to general sinners. Let me read what Jeff Thomas says. He says, this man is not every man. This boy is not your run-of-the-mill sinner. This man is how he is described in this parable. A rake, a fool, a drunkard a waster, a derelict, a heartbreaker. That is what he is, and he does not stand in this parable as the spiritual symbol of the ordinary sinner. He stands in this parable as the symbol of the sinner in the pits, as far as you can go, as low as you can fall, in the gutter, on death row. He is the extreme, thrown out of even low company. If ever there were a son, see, here's the point. If ever there were a son whom the father would refuse, it would be this son. If there ever was a sinner whom God would reject, it would be this man, this prodigal. He's not an ordinary sinner. This man is on the lowest rung of the ladder, an inch above the surface of the cesspool, and sinking into it ever faster. I think that's right. I think think Jesus is putting before us... Uh, a truly degenerate man, an incredibly foolish, wicked, ungrateful, worthless man. A man as filthy and lost and far from God as the pigs he was feeding in that pen. He's as morally unclean and unfit for grace as a man can possibly be. That's what the audience would see. That's what Jesus wants us to see. He's taken pains to, to paint for us the picture of a truly degenerate person. Why? Because people do not understand the magnificence of grace. You see, Jesus is talking to both Pharisees and prostitutes, and neither of them dare believe that God could be this gracious. This is going to shock the Pharisees, and they're going to be offended. It's going to shock the prostitutes and tax collectors, and they are going to gather. Because nobody really expects this. Paul uses a similar dynamic when he refers to his own life. I was a blasphemer. I was insolent. And yet God had grace on me, he says in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. God had grace on me. He had patience with me. As evidence, you see, of the grace of God, that that this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus died for sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And, and And he basically says, God saved me, the worst of the worst, so that... You, everyone, can believe that God could be gracious to you. You see, we, 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 need to, we need to see that grace goes this far, or we'll be tempted to believe it doesn't go this far. Thomas again says this, we can think that we're unique in our shame, guilty, depraved. We might feel abandoned, so far gone that there's no hope for us. Christians can have those experiences those fears. Yet here in this man, we meet the worst possible scenario, the most abandoned of men, the most selfish, the most cruel, the most wretched, the most hopeless. Here is the chief of sinners. And yet there is a road from where he was to where the Father is. And there is a road from where you are to where God is. And that's what we need to hear. 
as lost as he was, there was a road from where he was to where the Father is, and there's a road from wherever you are to where God is. It's one of the greatest lessons of the parable. Wherever you are today in realizing the foolishness and the hypocrisy of your life, as you face the truth of your own corruption, wherever you might be on the moral scale, even this morning, if you believe that you are at the very bottom, there is a road for you from wherever you are that leads to where the Father is. And that road is called repentance. And so we see a wonderful picture here of a waking soul because that's exactly what happens to this man. He came to himself. He was in a coma, a sin-induced coma. And then the fog lifted. And the lies that he had believed were exposed. The things that he had told himself that were true, were, he, he realized they weren't true. He was able to see what was true, both about himself and about his condition, and he was able to see what was true about his father. You see, when he left home, he was convinced that his father was the reason for all his, his anxiety in his life. His father was oppressing him. His father was constricting him. His father was barring him from the good life. He maybe had not thought of his father for many, many days, weeks, months, years, but now he remembers his father. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. It's the essence of true repentance. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that, that repentance, the, the, the grace of repentance, begins with a true sense of sin, but, but immediately with it, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You see, you have to believe that God, that, that you have a father in heaven who receives sinners. So it's not enough to see the truth of your sin. If, if, if that's all you'll see, you'll simply sit there in your guilt and your shame. Repentance is the conviction that there is a way back home. There's a road that leads from wherever I am to where the Father is and that, that He will receive me. This young man believes that, you see. He doesn't get all of it. He doesn't understand just how gracious his father is. He's going to come and maybe try to make a deal with him. But he knows the father will receive him. And that's, that's huge, you see. Because his own conscience is accusing him. The devil is condemning him. His elder brother, he's quite sure, is going to denounce him. But what will his father do? His father will be gracious. Gracious enough to let him work as a servant. At least he can appeal to it. Parents, our children need to know that, don't they? That if they wander off, if they get arrested for drunk driving, if they get caught stealing, if they get pregnant out of wedlock, if they get AIDS, if they become addicted, the road of repentance will always lead from where they are to where their father is. The road of repentance always leads home. And we want to promise our kids, I'm not going to cry, but we want to promise our kids we'll do our best to be there. Alistair Bay was telling a story about a, a pastor who saw a young man on the street in the city and went and talked to him, and it was a prodigal. And he told, told this young man, you need, you need to go home. And he convinced this young man to go home, and so the young man did, and a few days later, the pastor saw the young man there on the street again. And he said, well, what happened? And the young man said, well, he, he didn't kill the, the fattened calf. He nearly killed the prodigal son. 
And some parents, you see, communicate that. That if, if you come back home, there's going to be a price to pay. You're going to get a lecture. How dare you do this to your mother and I after all we've done for you? How dare you just show up? Never even a phone call? And now you're just back? And everything's going to be okay? Those are speeches that are easy for us to give. But the gospel, you see, frees us to let our kids know that the road of repentance always leads home. And we'll be waiting, eager, ready to shower them with grace. This young man acknowledges his sin, doesn't he? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He, he acknowledges the truth. He, he sinned against God. He in, un, incredibly sinned against his father. And there are just consequences that he acknowledges. But he pleads for mercy. This is exactly what David does in Psalm 51. According to your steadfast love, according to your great mercy, blot out my transgressions. And again, his repentance isn't perfect. He's trying to make a deal in some sense. Let me be a servant. But, but it's, though it's not perfect faith, it's God-honoring faith. He's, he's tired of the wages of sin. He wants to go home. And he honors the Father by believing the Father will receive him. He honors the Lord that way. You see, re repentance has the sense that there's nothing in the world that's worth not having my Father, not being home. The psalmist says in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There's nothing in this world that has, a, has appeal. I'd rather be home. I want to be with my father. I want to, I want to dwell in the, I want to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That, that's, that's humility. That's beautiful, humble repentance. And then he gets up and he goes home. Thomas again makes the point that so many, this, so often this is where people stop. They they come to their senses, they acknowledge their sin, but for whatever reason, they don't go home. They don't quite dare believe that they could actually show up and be received, and, since, and, and, and so they try to clean themselves up first. They try to, to make some improvements first, and then they fall back into the sin or back into to whatever it is that's holding them down, and, and, and they give in to despair again. Repentance goes all the way through. He got up. And he left the pigsty, and he went to his father. And maybe for some of you, that's exactly what's not happened yet in your life. You, you've been maybe in the church all your life, and you, you, you know your sin. You've confessed it a thousand times. But have you ever just got on your knees and went home? Went to the father with just what you are and asked the father to forgive you. And then we're, we're able to believe that that's exactly what happened. Because you see, when we come this way, we have a waiting father. Again, everyone listening to the story knew what the father should have done, right? There's no question what he should have done. In fact, there was a story, scholars say, that was, that was known, a story that the, rab the rabbis told about a prodigal son. And in that story, when the son comes to his senses and returns home, the father, being a righteous man, does not go run and greet him. He, he stands and waits for the son to come to him. And, and when the father arrives, the father rips his robe as a sign that his son is dead to him, that the son has been disowned from the family because of his sin. And in that story, you see, the father is a hero because the father loves righteousness so much 
that he will not let even his own son besmirch the law of God. He loves righteousness more than even his own son. And, it, and it, it's not a bad story. It's what sin deserves. It, it would have been perfectly appropriate if the father had done exactly that, you see. But it's not the story that Jesus tells. In this story, the gospel story, the father is waiting. While he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran to him. That's not how the story goes in the rabbi's version. It's not how the story goes in our own legalistic hearts. And yet it's the gospel story that the father sees a long way off. Why? Because he was looking, he was waiting. His, his heart is for, and he, his grace leans toward. He's a, he's a God full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love. Can I just picture this man right in the story, waiting for his son to come home. And it's out in the, in, in the country, apparently, there'd be a dusty dirt road of some sort, and, and, and maybe each day there would be a figure or two would come down that road, and he'd see the, the dust kind of kicking up on the horizon, and then it would take the, sort of the form of a person, he'd be watching, Is, could it be him? And then as it got closer, it was, it was a stranger, maybe a neighbor. And they'd walk on past, and he'd sit back down. But one day there was a cloud of dust and that cloud of dust became the form of a person and, and the father noticed there was a familiarity in the, in the gait, the way he walked and then the features and it was his boy. And he's full of compassion and runs to embrace his lost son. Notice he doesn't even let the boy finish his speech. The kid just gets started. Father, I've sinned against you. He never gets to the part about, let me be one of the hired servants. The father sees the repentance and, and throws his arms around him and grants him full and free forgiveness. Everything is forgiven. Every piece of it. Every crime, every slander, every shameful thing that this young man has done, it is all immediately gone. And in its place is honor and blessing. The father begins barking orders, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The man is a mess, right? His, his clothes are tattered and stink with, with pigs. And the father says, come bring that best robe. Because this is my son. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand because he's being restored to, to honor and a, a member of the family. And put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. And Jesus, you see, is clearly connecting now, with what he said before, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over the 99 who don't need to repent. This is the scene that's taking place in heaven when a sinner comes home. Did you, did you see why the prostitutes and the tax collectors loved him? <laughs> they knew who they were. They knew what, they have, what they've done. They know what they deserve. 
And yet nobody could have anticipated a gospel like this, good news like this. How could a father so grievously sinned against possibly forgive his own son who was so great a sinner? Because it's the character of God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And because God has made a way to love both righteousness and prodigal sons. That's the beauty of the gospel as Jesus tells it. Jesus knows how this works. The moral people are perplexed. How, how can the, the Father possibly do this? Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the elder's brother response. And, and you're going to see it's not a strange response. It's not just a cruel response. How is it possible that this can happen in, in a moral universe? And the only way that it can happen in a moral universe with a, with a just God is, is if God is able to love both the righteous, both righteousness and sinful sons by somehow making it possible for prodigal children who stink with their sin to be robed in righteousness that's perfect and pure. And that's, of course, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and for prodigals on the cross. And so God is doing still today, friends. This is the gospel that's true today. This is the good news we get to tell the lost world. Doesn't matter where you are, there's a road from wherever you are to where the Father is. We can confidently tell anyone and everyone. And we need to believe it for ourselves. It's got to start there. You can't tell the story convincingly unless, unless you're convinced it's true. And it's true for you. There, there's a road from where you are. Some of you are not where you wish you were. Not where you want to be. And you feel the truth of that. You feel the shame of that. You feel the guilt of it. You've been places that you can't imagine how you got there. And you're sort of hoping that maybe your good intentions, maybe if you try harder, maybe if you pray more, maybe if you just get more serious, that the Father won't notice the filthy rags. Friend, you need to hear the gospel. He, he notices the filthy rags. He knows all about him. But there's a robe that he's prepared for you through the cross of Jesus Christ if you're willing to come back home and repent. I think we need to believe this for those we love. It can be disheartening, profoundly disheartening to, to have loved ones who are prodigal children. And some of you know exactly what that's about today. Children who know the truth, but they're walk, they've walked away. And they seem to be doing just what the prodigal was doing. There's a fog of sin that's covered their eyes they can't see. I just want to encourage you as parents to believe in the gospel, even for your kids. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting where Jesus so often will say to a parent, just believe. Right? Just believe. Don't give up on prodigal children. Pray in faith. Pray with hope. God is, he knows where they are. He knows what they need. He's able to give that grace, and he so, so often does for our prodigal children. So wherever you are today, friends, I know this is a story you've heard before. I, I hope that today the Holy Spirit has encouraged you in it, in the confidence, the knowledge that Jesus Christ has, he knows who you are, he's, he's taken all your sin, he's covered it with his righteousness, and that if you're in Christ, you see, then you've been restored as an adopted child of God. So live there, stand there, receive the grace that is yours, accept the privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus, the privileges of forgiveness of sin, the privileges of 
of open access to the Father to pray and to talk and to lean upon Him, the confidence of His love for you. This is the Father who was waiting. This is the Father who sent His own Son to bring you home. And so let's live as though the gospel were true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the wonderful door that he has opened for sinners. And Father, I thank you that this Jesus has come not just to forgive us, but to restore life. And in the midst of funerals and in the midst of loss, I thank you that Jesus Christ has answered all of it. In the midst of guilt and shame and wreckage, Jesus Christ stands and welcomes us home. Father, I pray for for prodigal children today, sons and daughters of the church, who have fallen in love with a foreign country. And the fog of sin has covered their eyes and so that our our words seem to be of no avail. But I thank you, Lord, that our prayers never are. And so, Lord, give us the faith to believe in your goodness for our children. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the joy of, of seeing you bring them home. Not home primarily to us, but home to God to their father. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who needed to be reminded that there is grace sufficient for the greatest sinners, the most grievous sins. There's grace that's able to forgive us. There's grace that's able to transform us. and We needed to hear it today. I pray that, Lord, your spirit would minister that truth to us. And Father, we we just ask that you'd help us, Lord, each of us, to be faithful, to believe it, and then, Lord, give us a hunger to share it, this good, good news in a lost, lost world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.